Welcome to the Fiber for Breakfast podcast, a series that discusses fiber as the critical infrastructure for today's growing broadband needs. Listen in as Gary Bolton, CEO and President of the Fiber Broadband Association, speaks with industry thought leaders and experts about connectivity issues and the impact on the remote workplace. I hope you enjoy today's discussion, which will start momentarily. And remember to subscribe and like this podcast on your favorite platform. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Fiber Broadband Association's Fiber for Breakfast. We're now in our 37th episode of 2022. But before we kick off, I'd like to thank our sponsors of Fiber for Breakfast, including our gold sponsors, Graybar and Vetro. This morning, our good friend Jeff Hainan from the research firm Deloro issued a press release announcing that Fiber the Home pond equipment revenue is up 19% year over year. Global spending on PON OLTs has reached a record of $1.3 billion in the second quarter of this year. Hainan also is quoted to say that the transition to fiber is clearly a worldwide phenomenon. He also reported that 10 gig XGS PON ONT shipments, ONT, that's part of some of the side of the house, those shipments exceeded 1 million units in the quarter. It appears that cable access concentrator revenue dropped 4%, which isn't really too surprising as cable operators, as they start to shift more to fiber to to the home deployments. At the FCC, it appears that Elon Musk and Starlink are contesting the FCC's decision to reject their $885 million RDOF award. You know, we continue to applaud Chairwoman Rosenworcel's decisive decision to deny Starlink. This move by the FCC saved 640,000 families from being redlined from the nation's current investment in critical infrastructure with RDOF and BEAT funding, and they would have been forever relegated to the wrong side of the digital divide. We are confident the FCC will continue to hold the line, and we support them 100% on their decision. Earlier this week, NTIA released the latest version of the BEAT FAQs, The new updates start on page 59, so there's a lot of FAQs, and it provides an additional 16 pages of new questions and answers. This update provided some really useful information. One, it really reinforced the high cost thresholds needs to really be really high to prioritize fiber, which we like, Um, provided um, clarification on workforce on no union or prevailing wage, but you must report. They also um, confirmed that F, NTI is going to wait on the FCC um, map challenges, among other things. So as you know, we had a wildly successful regional Fiber Connect workshop at the Copper Mountain Resort in Colorado a few weeks ago. It appears that all the records we set in Colorado are going to be broken with our upcoming Fiber Regional event in Columbus, Ohio on November 3rd. It is clear the people and leadership of Ohio really get it and they are very serious about fiber broadband. So you're not gonna wanna miss it, so please register today. So today we have a very special Fiber for Breakfast with Scott Walston, the president and senior fellow of the Technology Policy Institute. Scott is a very thoughtful and insightful guy, so I know this is gonna be a very fun and interesting session. I almost wanted to mention, we're gonna have a great webinar today at 1 p.m. Eastern that is on supply chain. And we have created a series of industry webinars um, that are really targeted for the state broadband offices, NTIA, and also any of those um, service providers that are gonna be applying for the the B grants. 
So please tune in today at 1 p.m. and learn about supply chain. So at Fire for Breakfast last week, we met with Nate Denny, the Deputy Secretary of the North Carolina Department of Information Technologies Broadband and Digital Equity Division, discussed broadband and digital equity in North Carolina. You know, lots going on in North Carolina, and we look forward to getting back together with Nate and his team in person in the first quarter as Raleigh will be our location for our first regional Fiber Connect workshop in 2023. Today's Fiber for Breakfast session is with Scott Walston, the president and senior fellow at the Technology Policy Institute. Scott is also a senior fellow at Georgetown Center for Business and Public Policy. He's an economist with expertise in industrial organization and public policy. He was the economics director for the FCC's National Broadband Plan and has been a lecturer at in Stanford Public or Stanford University's public policy program, the director of communications policy studies, and the senior fellow at the Progress and Freedom Foundation, a senior fellow at the AI, excuse me, AEI Brookings Joint Center for Regulatory Studies, and a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute and an economist at the World Bank, and a scholar at Stanford's institution, Institute for Economic Policy Research, and a staff economist at the U.S. President's Council of Economic Advisors. Scott, you're a pretty busy guy. And he also <laughs> holds a PhD in economics from Stanford University. So with all that, welcome, Scott. Um, please, for our audience, type in your questions as we go, and we'll work them in our Q&A. With that, let's get things started. So Scott, can you tell us a little bit about the Technology Policy Institute and about what you're currently focused on? You know, probably maybe a good place to start is your blog, the FCC Broadband Maps will be wrong, but it will, it was always gonna be that way. Right, well, thanks Gary, thanks for having me and, and to the Fiber Broadband Association for, for having me. Also, I, I, I like that I'm coming on a week after um, someone from North Carolina because I grew up there. So, um, you know, if, if you need any information about uh, North Carolina through the 1980s, um, I, I might be able to add some, some insights, what it was like to be at least in high school then, um, if that's useful. So uh, the, uh, the Technology Policy Institute is, um, we study, as you might imagine from our name, technology policy, and we're all economists, um, which makes us a little bit different from some other places. And in particular, we focus, we do mostly a lot of empirical work. We work with, we work with data and we cover uh, lots of topics. Broadband is one and within broadband, we you know, work on uh, universal service issues. We've done that for a long, long time. Um, and, uh, and, and uh, the, the, the effectiveness of different programs. Um, and we work on, I, I have a major project on privacy. We do antitrust work. We've done work on piracy and, um, and uh, intellectual property. Um, you know, we, all, we have a, a big uh, conference every summer in, in Aspen. Um, we just had this past August, I think went, went really well. Um, and so we, we do a lot of things. I think we're, we have a, a, a good group and I, I really enjoy it. Um, so, you know, in terms of uh, uh, the, the piece that I wrote, which was on the FCC's maps. Um, so before I, before I say anything about them, I, I think it's important to point out that the FCC, I think, is doing actually a really, really great job. Um, this is a hard project that Congress gave them. And by all accounts, 
They are working as hard as anyone could imagine you could work. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and really just doing a fantastic job. Um, so, you know, I want any criticisms that I make to be <laughs> with it, you know, with that understanding that caveat, because it's not criticizing the FCC or the people working on it because they are just amazing. Um, <clears throat> but of course, that doesn't mean that it's all going to go well. Uh, and, you know, one thing is that I think too many people have this belief that somehow we'll get this map and it will correct all of the problems with the existing 477 coverage data. And I don't know that that's true. Um, every data set, every data set has error in it. Um, that's just the way it is. <clears throat> and in particular, this data, this map will have errors because it's always it's always changing. Um, and you know, awards are already going out, not not beat awards, but by from states and, and cities and so on. And so, you know, as soon as this map is is finished, they'll have to add in you know the areas that awards were were given to to update that. Uh, and so it's you know th this challenge process that they have is important, and we'll have to continue pretty much I think forever. And maybe it's even wrong to call it a challenge process because that sort of implies an adversarial um, uh, uh, system and. And sometimes I'm sure it will be, but it doesn't. It doesn't have to be. It's. It's. You know. That's got to be an inherent part of what's going on. But I. I think we are. We're trading in some sense. I believe um, disaggregation for accuracy, possibly. Um, it's. It might be easier to have. Uh, you know, when you, when you aggregate up to some level, whether it's census block or bigger, you may have less error um, overall, except you can't go to a very small level. Um, and now we're trying to go to individual points. And so that gives you more precision, but it's precision, it may be precision with more error. And I, you know, that's gonna be, that's gonna be hard to deal with. And like I said, it's not a criticism of what they're doing because Congress told them to do this, um, but it's gonna be a very difficult and ongoing, and, and ongoing problem. Um, so, but that said, I mean, this is, this is, you know, that it's, it's, we hope that it'll be better than, than 477. Um, and we'll, you know, we'll see it's the challenge process is going to be exceedingly important and probably difficult. So when you look at just, um, you know, the, the census block approach, you know, the, the big issue is, you know, these census blocks can be huge, right? I mean, either. They can be very small geographically, but have a lot of people, or they could be very large geographically and have very few people. But you know, the issue is you serve one person that census block, and then you get a check mark. And so that's where the issue that why we went down to single location. No, that 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 that's right. And and there was and that was absolutely right. And and that was the reason for going to a single location. And that really is the only going to a single lo location is the only way to deal with that kind of aggregation problem. You might be able to do something like instead of saying um, you know that a block is covered, if you have one subscriber, you, you could say you know, the share of households in the block that's covered. That would have been an improvement, but you know, a different different sorts of challenges. You know, one interesting thing though about the maps that I don't think has really been discussed at all <clears throat> is that so the the, pur the purpose of the maps is for NTIA to decide how much money every state will get, right? Um, and then the states are not obligated to use that map. Um, well, the, there's no reason to believe that the error on census blocks is bigger in some places, bigger or smaller in some places than in others, which means that it's possible that after all this work, the share of areas that are unserved 
as calculated from a new map is exactly the same as from the four seven as from four seven seven, because it only matters if the bias is different in different areas, and we don't know that that's true. So, but we don't want to we don't want to lose all of this work though, and so I, I I think it's really important that the states use these maps. I mean now states will have their own. Um, their own information too that hopefully will be part of the challenge process and they can incorporate it into the maps but we but if 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 the if the only thing this map is used for is to allocate the money that would be a huge waste and lost opportunity yeah i mean so that's one of you know one of the things that we really struggle with is i mean first of all i think it's a little bit brilliant that um you know if you don't submit your uh, you know your information for the broad you know fcc's broadband data collection um you know, one, you can't participate in the bead funding, and two, you can't participate in the challenge process, um, which really kind of <laughs> is a pretty good incentive to make sure that every, all the service providers put their data in. Uh, but as each state, you know, and so these states know that their share of that $42 billion is really going to depend on, you know, what the new FCC maps say. And so many states are doing their own mapping, so they know, have a baseline to say, hey, when when they see the FCC, are they going to is they going to you know have as many unserved and underserved as they believe they have in their state to make sure they get their fair share? So there will be an opportunity for the states to be able to vet that and say, okay, if our maps say we we should be get a larger allocation for each state to to make sure that they get their fair share. There is, and it's and it's of course very important, but it also creates you know sort of these a strange incentive, right? Because the more unserved areas you have, the more money you get. Um, so states have an incentive to show that they have as much unserved area as possible, uh, which creates the potential for gaming. Um, and in, in the worst case scenario, you have a race to the bottom where everyone wants to show that they have no service at all, um, which obviously would be ridiculous. Um, but there is gonna be this, this issue that states have an incentive to show as much unserved area as possible. Um, and, um, you know, the FCC is going to have to be very rigorous about the, um, the challenge process to deal with that, with that incentive. Well, I mean, the, the other check you have, though, is service providers, because, you know, if a service provider is, you know, serving an area and the state claims that it's unserved, you know, that service provider, you know, has the opportunity then to say, whoa, whoa, whoa. And so, again, there's a lot of checks and balances. So I think this can be self-leveling. You know, yeah, well, we'll see. And uh, right. And, and and like I said, I, I think, I mean, the FCC is really doing a good job with all of this. Um, but these are all these are all kind of challenges that they'll have to kind of deal with as they as they come. Yeah. So one of the questions, let me see if I understand this. So we were able to only match 75 to 80 percent of the fabric. Any information is that indicate um, is that typical? Is that what you're seeing? Or? Um, well, yeah, I mean, I don't know about the the. The underlying fabric itself, I and mean, right now they're just it's, it's these broadband serviceable locations, um, which is a little bit different from the challenge process that will happen later, right? Um, and and actually, sort of one little uh, one little gripe I have is that the um, fabric doesn't seem to be available to anybody except for governments and ISPs, uh, and I'm not sure I see any reason for that. I don't know why they're excluding third parties, um, but. It's you know it's not it's not surprising to me that that that's the kind of result people would get when they start comparing it because it's because of the you know this error issue that I said um, error is inherent in this kind of in this kind of information um, and uh, uh, it, it, you know and, and 
what, what they're saying that they could match only 75%, that's we're starting to get a view of what the error is going to look like. Um, and hopefully mostly it won't be, you know, the people will be able to match more than that, but it's going to be that, that kind of information that tells us how much error is in there and how difficult it's, um, it's going to be to correct. Um, we've, you know, we've built um, our own mapping tool uh, and I don't even like to call it mapping because so much about, so what's important is really the, the data analytics. Um, and, you know, so we, we built this platform that lets us um, incorporate any broadband data that exists. So we've you know, pulled in all the public data. We can include proprietary information if we were to build out a separate system. And it lets you, you know, merge data and combine it at any, any level. Um, and we even have sort of built-in regressions and time series and, and all kinds of things. Uh, and one of the, you know, one a tool that we are, are finishing up right now is something that will allow you to look at different layers of information and identify when they conflict with each other. Uh, and that's going to be important. I mean, people sort of see these maps and they see layering, but those are just pictures. Um, and you've got to be able to do more than that. And so that's what we're, you know, that's what we're trying to do because some of it is, um, you know, it depends on, on definitions, right? And, and some of it's just probabilistic. You, 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 you don't know this stuff for sure. We sort of, we have this idea that it's possible to know exactly what exists at any given location. And, you know, people, I don't think a lot of people will know that this idea of a census of locations or uh, service areas kind of comes from when the U.S. Census did a census of telephones in the late 19th century. They just counted them like we count people every 10 years. Economic data has progressed so far beyond that approach in every other area of the economy. Um, you know, the Bureau of Economic Analysis and the BLS, they do very rigorous surveys. And, you know, that's what we, that's how we understand the economy. This idea of, um, of counting things is just outdated and, in my opinion, absurd. Um, we shouldn't be doing, again, not a criticism of the FCC because they're doing what Congress is telling them to do. Um, but we should be doing, you know, very extensive, uh, uh, you know, well-designed surveys using the skills and expertise of BEA and, and BLS. Um, but that's, for whatever reason, is just a non-starter. A non but, um, you know, if we were willing to open up our data collection processes to something like that, I think we could learn a lot more. It wouldn't have to worry about, you know, exactly, you know, is this, is, does this house have it? Does this house not have it? Um, and so on. So that's just a, you know, little side rant that I've been ranting about for a long time. <laughs> so if someone wanted to, to um, use your tools, where would they find those? Um, so you can go to tpibroadband.com uh, and you can sort of get a little taste of it. Uh, but a lot of the things that we have are sort of on the, the, the back end that we, you know, can do ourselves. So if you want, I mean, we have this little um, explainer video of like a data downloading tool. You can show it if, um, if you like, it's a couple minutes, but the thing to remember when watching it is that I made it and I don't know how to make these, <laughs> these explainer videos. And the, you know, when it pops out a spreadsheet at the end, it was really for our own use. So the spreadsheet, you know, we don't round the numbers or anything, but it, but it kind of gives a sense of, of the kind of, um, how easy it is to get data out of it when it would normally take you a really, really long time to find, download, and merge the data. So if you, if you want to show that, you, you can, but don't, you know, don't judge me for my video skills. As a broadband professional, you frequently need access to lots of information like availability, adoption, or even more specific things like how much RDOF money in Area 1. And you probably need it for different types of geographies and years, depending on what you're doing, sometimes for a state or states, sometimes for counties, congressional districts, census blocks, and more. 
putting this together takes time and some computer savvy. You've got to identify the data sets, where they're hosted, figure out how to download what you want, and combine it all. It takes hours of your time, or you hire someone else to do it. Our tool can do it for you in just a few seconds. Let me show you how. So to get the data you want, you go to the DPI Broadband Data Explorer. Uh, you select the geographic level you're interested in. You can see we have um, almost any political designation you can think of. Let's leave it on state for now. Um, and now you go to the data that you're interested in. Let's say you want the share of households with broadband access. And then you have to define what you mean by broadband access. So the default is 25 down, three up. Um, but these numbers, you can change to be anything you want. Uh, you can even add another one so that you can do comparisons. So let's add 120. So we also know the share of households with access to broadband at 100 down and 20 up. Now let's say you also want to know at the same time about adoption. So let's select the American Community Survey uh, share of households that are broadband subscribers. And you want to know something about the digital divide. So you can select households with under $20,000 a year in income that have broadband. And let's also add uh, the uh, RDOF support that was one for the state. Next, you select the time period you want. You can select all the available years or the most recent year only. This last option is if you've selected something that will be a very large data set and you want to change the way the data are shaped. Normally, you can just leave this unchecked. Then you click download and you wait for the computer to do all of the relevant merges in the background, uh, and then it will provide you with a data set to download. So then you open the downloaded file in Excel or any program that can read comma delimited text files, and you see you have the state, uh, the uh, share of households that subscribe to broadband, the share of households with um, incomes under $20,000 a year that subscribe to broadband, the RDOF assignment in that state, um, the share with access to 25.3, and the share with access to 120. Yeah, so now all you need to do is to, my students would take that and put it into a visualization tool like Tableau or something like that. To... Um, yeah, exactly. Uh, that's, that's the idea um, for people who need this kind of thing frequently. And that's just some of the data we have, and we're really eager for the FCC's data because like you saw the availability, of course, right now is just 477 with all of the problems that we talked about. Um, and so, uh, you know, we can incorporate any other data, but this is sort of a fun, a fun thing to, um, to, to do. Um, I, it looks like we only have a few minutes left. I, do you want to talk a little bit about the paper Greg and I wrote so I, I can um, yeah. make so numbers? Yeah, um, just before we get there, there was someone that put in that um, in the FCC's uh, BDC user's guide, page 98, on you know, who can access the fabric data. It mm -hmm. says other entities can view coverage by file and provider. And they're asking, has anyone um, at the defined other entities been successful in accessing that? So you said, Scott, you weren't, but- um, Right, I would love to know the answer to that because I've, I've seen similar things, right? It says that it will be open to everybody, including third parties, but this first part, the fabric, where well, you know, the underlying fabric where it's um, just identifying broadband serviceable locations. In the FCC's uh, releases, it, it says very specifically, it only mentions governments and ISPs. It doesn't say nobody else can, but it doesn't mention them. Um, so I also would love to know if third parties are, are able to. 
Yeah. Hey, so um, let's jump into, you know, so you and Scott, or excuse me, you and Greg Rostin um, wrote a research paper, Maximizing Beads Broadband Reach. You want to kind of give our audience kind of a, a summary of some of the key tenets of that? Sure. Um, so this is, I, I wrote this with Greg Rostin, who is um, at, uh, an economist at the Stanford Institute for Economic Policy Research and the director of their public policy, Stanford's public policy program. Um, we do a lot of work on, on these, these kinds of issues. Um, and uh, so, you know, one of the things is we've been big proponents of reverse auctions, which I know people really don't like at the moment. Um, but, you know, the, uh, the, the problems with, with RDOF stemmed not from it being a reverse auction, but from the eligibility criteria, right? Um, and well, the so, bidder after the fact doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right. Um, and so, and, and this will sort of get into the next point that, um, you know, we, we want things to be tech, technologically neutral. And we want to have encouraged new new technologies and, and new entrants to come in, but we don't want the government to be taking all of the risk on that. Uh, and so, you know, it, we, we think it should be designed in a way that the provider itself takes more of the risk. And so, you know, for example, like you don't get any money until you've got something built that you can show and you're starting to provide service. Um, and so, you know, I guess so in, for Starlink, the example, you know, let, let Elon Musk um, bid, but don't give him a dime until you know, they can, can show something. Why would we, why would we subsidize Elon Musk's risk? It's crazy. Um, but in, in my view, we, you know, we shouldn't be excluding things like that. So, you know, the other part, and, and this is where hopefully can, uh, everybody will start to start to dislike me. Um, I, you know, I really think we, we need to focus, we, we need to have technological neutrality um, and focusing on one technology like fiber is, is a mistake. Um, not to dismiss the importance of fiber, because everybody knows that it's a key tool, no matter what. Even I think even Starlink people wouldn't deny that. Um, but I think it's a mistake to focus only on fiber. And the, you know, the the kind of the right way to think about it is what are the you know the, the what's the net present value of the costs and benefits of installing something, and that also could include you know how long it'll take to get service up and running. Yeah, and you know so. You know, Scott, you and I always have a good debate on this, but, you know, I don't think of fiber as a technology, it's infrastructure, and BEAT is about infrastructure. So if you look at the FCC programs, um, even from the National Broadband Plan, when you guys wrote that, that was um, defined uh, one megabit as uh, broadband, you know, about 12 years ago. Uh, and so we end up this race to the bottom, right? Because when you just um, say you got to meet a minimum speed of four megabits down and one megabit up, and then we subsidize the same areas again when it's 10-1, and then again when it's 25-3, and again when it's 100 by 20. And you're really, you're just basically, you know, what we did is we subsidized a lot of DSL. And so and now we're going to, you know, if we subsidize fixed wireless or LEO satellites, or then you're just going to constantly be you know, spending more and more money versus what the administration's trying to do here with the B program is actually put in critical infrastructure. And this is, you know, what's going to last for generations to come. And so if we're able to put fiber in, then, you know, wireless can take advantage of that with 5G. Everybody, you know, we can take advantage of that for smart grid modernization. We can take advantage for, um, you can, or you're building on this for public safety. So all the things are being built on this critical, you know, foundation. Well, so, you know, I think the, the, there are several answers to that. One is it's important to take into account consumer demand. And if you're putting in something that people don't actually value, then that's, you know, that's wasted resources. And those resources could have been used to provide broadband elsewhere. Also, I think it's a mistake to, to say that um, 
you know, in, in, investing in fiber means that you've done something forever because fiber needs to repl be replaced too, just like any other technology. And I think people have gotten this idea that once you put in fiber, it stays there forever, but it's got a life of what, 25 years, right? Um, no, and hundred so, years or more. Yeah. I don't know. Well, Mark Gansey, who's the CEO of um, uh, Digital Bridge, and you know, worked works a lot of this was saying that these things often need replacement after 25 years. So, I mean, you might say the conduits and so on have, you know, that's much more of a permanent thing. Um, but, you know, so it's it's. I mean, it seems to me the the right answer is always how do you maximize the net benefits, um, and we haven't done that. I mean, we haven't even tried to. We haven't we haven't done any of the calculations. All right, so agree to disagree. <laughs> but hey, we're out of time, Scott. And I really appreciate all the work uh, that you do at the Institute and your contributions really to help move our industry forward and really love to, your insights on things. So thanks, yeah, thanks everyone for joining us today and look forward to getting back together next Wednesday where we're going to be discussing millions left behind. Bead isn't enough to close the digital divide with Larry Thompson, the CEO of Vantage Point, as he discusses his somewhat uh, controversial white paper, The Cost of Bringing Broadband to All. So you guys aren't going to want to miss that. And we'll go see you guys again next Wednesday. So thanks all.